Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Movie Dicks Podcast. I'm Gabriel Chavez. And I am Paul Shingle. Today, we asphyxiate in the coincidental ridiculousness of the air I breathe. But first, this is a comedy podcast. If you have not seen the movie we are about to shit on and want to avoid spoilers, stop now. But if you don't care about spoilers and want to laugh and learn why this movie sucks so bad, stay exactly where you are. Eventually, something awesome will happen to you. Without further ado, let's hand it over to Pablo Francisco. A drama based on an ancient Chinese proverb that breaks down life into four emotional cornerstones. Happiness, pleasure, sorrow, and love. A businessman bets his life on a horse race, a gangster sees the future, a pop star falls prey to a crime boss, and a doctor must save the love of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it's gonna be deep. Like like Magnolia deep, you know? Yeah, no. This movie tries Uh, so desperately hard (laughs) to be like a Robert Altman movie. It really does. And it's, it's unfortunate because it just lends itself to pretension because of this fucking structure that it just... Yeah, it doesn't work. Anyway, you'll figure this out as we go along. <laughs> this is a Think Film release, in the U.S. anyway, through Nala Films and Paul Schiff Productions. Think Film has released 197 movies over the years, most of which are indies or region-specific releases. Among their best are the director of American History X, Tony Kay's brutal and honest documentary Lake of Fire. If you haven't seen this, it's absolutely required viewing, and I honestly believe it should be shown in schools and taught as a flashpoint of discourse. But I digress. In addition to Tony's documentary, they've released a ton of great docs over the years, War Dance, Bus 174, Herzog's Encounters at the End of the World, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till, Murder Ball, Taxi to the Dark Side, the hilarious and fantastic documentary about how Troy Duffy is probably the largest cunt to ever try to work (laughs) in Hollywood called Overnight, and one of my all-time favorites, Fuck. This documentary is absolutely hilarious, poignant, and interviews everyone you could think of on the origins of the word. It's fucking fantastic. Just fucking watch the fucking movie, please. All right, I'll stop saying fuck for now. Narratively, they've given us The Great Before the Devil Knows You're Dead by 12 Angry Men and network director Sidney Lumet, one of my all-time favorite Ryan Gosling movies called Half Nelson about a crack-smoking teacher, The Dangerous... (laughs) Have you seen that, dude? It's so good. No, I guess not, yeah. It's fucking fantastic, dude. Anthony Mackie is fantastic in that movie, too. And, like, later on, those directors would go on in order to do uh, Captain Marvel, which is kind of unfortunate, but, you know, besides the point. They also did The Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys, Shane Carruth's brilliant debut Primer, the brutal war film Fateless, The Assassination of Richard Nixon, Neil Marshall's excellent and violent horror flick called Dog Soldiers, the absolutely fantastic John Cameron Mitchell movie Short Bus, which everyone should see if you haven't, and the very unfairly reviewed movie Tidelands by the great Terry Gilliam. Do you remember oh. this flick, Paul? Tidelands? Yeah, the Jeff yeah, Bridges yeah. one where he ODs on heroin and his little girl <laughs> has to take care of his dead body. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, do you uh, know? It's a Gilliam movie through and through. Oh, sure. sure. Yeah. But do you know that that movie has a 26 on Metacritic? <sighs> I think it was the creepy like other character who was in love with this little girl or something like that that uh set everyone off 
Yeah, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I I love it. I think it's great, and I couldn't disagree more with that Metacritic rating. But you know, I I'm one person, I guess. But whatever. No, I thought it was a good movie. I get yeah. why people find it inaccessible. Maybe you know because it is so fucking weird, and it is a Terry Gilliam movie all the way through. But it's uh, it's definitely not worthy of twenty six percent. But I digress. On their shitty movie list, they have a bunch of horror movies that I've never heard of or seen, like Gag, Dark Heaven, Hallow's End, Devil's Harvest, and Bad Meat. So in my <laughs> mind, Think Film still releases good movies. But if I had to pick a bad one I've seen other than The Air I Breathe, I'd have to say Lie With Me with Lauren Lee Smith, Eric Balfour, and Polly Shannon. This movie tried so desperately to be the Bernardo Budalici sex drama, but it comes off as just exploitation, and both leads are annoying as shit. Don't get me wrong, I encourage real sexuality in films, but if there is no story and your characters are pieces of shit, congratulations people, you made a fucking high budget porno and that's it. Nala Films has a considerably smaller list with only 12 titles released. They did the entertaining Sofia Coppola movie The Bling Ring, Paul Haggis's honest and depressing In the Valley of Ela, shout out New Mexico film, as well as the awful Will Ferrell shit heap called Casa de Mi Padre, and the <laughs> awful horror film Six Souls. I'm so glad that people kind of forgot about Casa de Mi Padre. Like, not very many people talk about that, and it's a good thing. I wish that people would do that with Step Brothers because they fucking hate that movie. <laughs> I like that movie a lot, actually. I think it's, uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe we should it's add that one very, to the list. Very, yeah, 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 that'd be a good one. <laughs> it's got some very memorable moments to me. Ball sack on the drums. And, yeah, sure. <laughs> and the Catalina wine mixer. Right, you know, right. Everyone does that. <laughs> sure. Anyways. Anyway, Paul Schiff Productions <laughs> has done 19 titles over the years, eight of which are announced and not in pre-production yet, but the 11 that remain that we can see only one has a positive Metacritic review. They did My All-American with Aaron Eckhart, 34 on Metacritic. Fractured for Netflix with Sam Worthington, 36 on Metacritic. Into the Grizzly Maze with James Marsden, 43. How It Ends for Netflix, also with Forrest Whitaker, 36. Beasts of Burden with Daniel Radcliffe, 33. And Epic Movie, 17% on Metacritic. Goddamn. So, in other words, all of Paul Schiff Productions' movies are shit, and the sole exception is Solitary Man with Michael Douglas with a 69 on Metacritic. This diatribe on coincidence was produced by 11 people, presumably trying to find money to secure the cast, given that the script certainly wasn't the reason that they signed on. <laughs> However, as usual, I only want to chat about a few of them. Bill Johnson, Paul Schiff, and Alex Garcia, who is uncredited on this movie. Bill Johnson has a bizarre resume. He did the movie that proved Richard Donnie Darko Kelly is a one-trick pony, the movie called Southland Tales with The Rock and Sean William Stifler Scott, The Lazarus Project, the awful De Niro movie Killer Elite, the awful, awful, awful remake of The Women, the really horrendous Ashton Kutcher movie Jobs where he tried to act for once in his fucking life and failed, the movie that proved that good directors like Andrew Nichol who gave us Lord of War and Gattaca can do hot garbage called The Host, not to be confused with Bong Joon-ho's brilliant monster flick by the same name, Punisher Warzone, the melancholic semi-zombie movie called Maggie with Arnold, the awful Tom Hanks flick, A Hologram for a King, and the tremendous atrocity that is Keanu Reeves' movie, Replicas. However, 
He did do a few good ones with The Peaceful Warrior, Hachi, A Dog's Tale. Yes, it's a family movie, but God damn it if I haven't cried every fucking time I see that movie. <laughs> and it's on the top 250, so suck it, haters. And the Liam Neeson punches wolves flick called The Grey. <laughs> Paul Schiff, outside of his production company that exclusively produces shit movies, has produced the shit sequel, Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise, Young Guns 1 and 2, the terrible remake of a wonderful Dutch movie called The Vanishing. The travesty that is The Ghost in the Machine. Made in Manhattan with Gigli star J-Lo. Mona Lisa Smile with Julia Roberts. The Walking Tall remake with The Rock. As well as both date movie and epic movie. A.K.A. the 23rd and 12th worst movies of all time respectively. <laughs> he did however produce the rather good movie Green Street Hooligans, Wes Anderson's Wonderful Rushmore, and My Cousin Vinny which is one of my very favorite comedies. Alex Garcia has produced over 120 titles in his time, most of which I have not seen but the reason I bring him up is he produced a couple of my very favorite movies, the Leica stop motion animated movie called Missing Link and the brilliant Jose Padilla directed movie Elite Squad starring the fantastic Narcos star Wagner Mora. Side note, this has a fucking 33 on Metacritic. Like, what the fuck? This movie <laughs> and its sequel are dope. Critics can get it wrong sometimes, but unfortunately not with this movie. I'm talking about the air I breathe that is not with Elite Squad. Elite Squad is dope. Go see Elite Squad <laughs> 1 and 2, motherfucker. That's it. That's all I wanted to say about Alex. I'm not even going to bring up the bad movies that he's done because the two movies undo any bad ones which he has been a part of. <laughs> the Air I Breathe stars a lot of people. Kevin Bacon, Julie Delpy, Brendan Fraser, Andy Garcia, Sarah Buffy, Michelle Geller, Clark Gregg, Emil Hirsch, Kelly Hu, John Bernthal, John Cho, and Forrest Whitaker. I'm only going to concentrate on a few here, but Emil I won't review as we already described him and what a fucking awful career he has had in episode 19's Speed Racer review, as is the same with Kevin Bacon when we took a look at Hollow Man. But to be concise, I want to talk about Julie, Brendan, Andy, and Forrest. Julie Delpy, I want to talk about first because the Before Trilogy is by far one of the greatest achievements in acting, directing, and screenwriting ever put to film. They should be required viewing for everyone flat out. What are these things? The Before Trilogy. You know, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Link yeah, Letters yeah. thing. Fucking Wait, fantastic. In this movie, she just lays on a bed the whole time, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, she's the snake yeah. bite lady. Okay. Yep, yeah. yep, exactly. Good job. But she is an unbelievably <laughs> talented actress and has been nominated for two Oscars for her performance in Before Sunset and Before Midnight. She's breathtaking in the Three Colors trilogy, which should also be required viewing, the absolute acid trip of a movie called Waking Life, Europa, Europa, Bad Blood, Broken Flowers with Bill Murray, and I'm not even going to deride her at all because her career has been filled with more greats than most actors can hope for in their lifetime. Brendan, however, is a different story. <laughs> this guy has been in some awful shit and maybe a few good ones. Obviously, we all know him in the role of Rick O'Connell in the Mummy remakes by deep rising director Stephen Summers. <laughs> and maybe you even remember him in the terrible George of the Jungle. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that all too well, which is why I can't take him seriously. But he's also been in Furry Vengeance, Dudley Do-Right, Monkey Bone, which is just, fuck me, man, that movie. God damn it. 
in the army now with fucking Polly Shore, Dickie Roberts with David fucking Spade, the nut job, G.I. Joe, Rise of the Cobra, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Encino Man, bedazzled with former actress Elizabeth Hurley. What the fuck happened to her, man? <laughs> Seriously. And Blast from the Past with Alicia Silverstone, which actually made me want to vomit while watching that movie. <laughs> <laughs> he did co-star in a few good movies, though. He was in Best Picture winner Crash, whose Oscar in retrospect really should have gone to Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> Dogfight with River Phoenix, Gods and Monsters, which is fucking amazing. The Quiet American with Michael Caine and Airheads, which I really fucking like. It's funny, but I still fucking hate Adam Sandler. Side note, watch Doom Patrol. It's on HBO Max, and it's fucking fantastic. If you haven't seen that shit, that shit is dope. And Brendan Fraser's dope in it. Andy Garcia tries really hard to be in good movies. He really does, dude. He's been in The Untouchables with Zardoz alum Sean Connery, <laughs> Ocean's Eleven, Stand and Deliver, and the unfairly shit-upon Ridley Scott movie called Black Rain. But, of course, I have to remind everyone about The Godfather Part 3, which is going to get a facelift for its 30th anniversary on December 1st and 8th for theatrical and Blu-ray, respectively, for its 30th anniversary in which Coppola re-edited the entire fucking movie and changed the opening and the ending. I can't wait to see it because Godfather 3 set the very fucking benchmark by which all terrible endings of great trilogies are measured. <laughs> he was also in Beverly Hills Chihuahua, Max Steel, Geostorm, and the diarrhea bath on the grave of Peter Sellers, known as Pink Panther 2 with oh, Mar Steve Martin. <laughs> Fuck you. Ugh. See, I can only remember him from Oceans 11 and 13 and 14. Wait, is there 15 now? No, asshole. To... There's 11, oh. 12, and 13, and then there's Ocean's 8, bro. <laughs> uh, lastly, Forrest Whitaker is a fucking legend. Full stop. He won a much overdue Oscar for The Last King of Scotland in 2007. He's in the excellent Black Panther. Best Picture winner, Platoon. Denny Villanueva's Incredible Arrival. Ernest and Celestine, Rogue One, Fruitvale Station, The Great Debaters. Smoke, Good Morning Vietnam, the classic Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which I actually have a really hard time watching that movie with Forrest Whitaker in it because I know how he is as an actor after that. And just seeing him in that role with the lazy eye, I'm just like, <laughs> I can't take this seriously, man. Like, I can't take him as like a comedic actor. He's also in the, uh, the brutal Neil Jordan movie, The Crying Game, the excellent movie Dope, Clint Eastwood's fantastic biopic Bird, The Color of Money, the flawed but fantastic phone booth, Fincher's Panic Room, Out of the Furnace, and the intensely sad movie Where the Wild Things Are. And the fucking masterpiece that is Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, bro. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh my god. Can you believe that <laughs> can you believe that Jim Jarmusch has been talking about a sequel focusing on the Riz's character? Have you heard about this? I think I told uh -huh. you about this. But I couldn't yeah. be more excited if that actually happens, dude. Like the yeah. camouflage samurai that he plays that shows up halfway through the movie is like one of the <laughs> best fucking characters. And I'm just like, holy shit, like who is that guy? And the idea that they're going to give him his own movie and it's Jim Jarmosh doing it. I'm like, fuck, yes, make this movie. I don't care if I have to give you all the money that I have right now in order to make it. <laughs> just fucking do it. I won't go into his bad shit. <coughs> Battlefield Earth. <coughs> but because to he's me, also in species. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, dude. Yeah. I don't mind species though. Like species like is species, bad, but, but uh... yeah, it's, not, it's not. It's not like Battlefield Earth where you're like, what the yeah. motherfuck is going on? 
But because of that, you know, like to me, Whitaker can do no wrong. So I'm not even going to bother going down the bad movies that he's in because he has been in a lot of bad ones. Also, watch Godfather of Harlem. It's fantastic. And I worked on the first season and I'm currently working on the second season. If you watch it, I will continue to have a job. That's all. <laughs> this movie, this movie is credited to J-Ho Lee and Bob DeRosa as screenwriters. J-Ho wrote and directed a short before he wrote and directed this movie. That's it. Nothing since in any capacity whatsoever. Like, this has been his one and only movie. Bob DeRosa, however, wrote the awful movie Killers with Ashton Kutcher. God damn you, Ashton. Just retire, you useless piece of shit. Good lord. This movie was produced on a budget of $10 million and opened on January 25th, 2008. In seven, its widest release, and coincidentally our smallest, theaters <laughs> to a $19,487 opening weekend, our second smallest behind Zardoz last week. It was 55th at the box office that weekend, with the Paul Giamatti abortion Fred Claus above it and the Brazilian <laughs> movie called... <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that movie. <laughs> and the Brazilian movie called Alice's House Above It. This same weekend, an untold tragedy occurred, Paul. Meet the Spartans was number one at the box office <laughs> uh, this weekend for the $18.5 million that, weekend. Does that mark the turning point of the United States of America when it really just started to go to all shit. wrong absolutely there. right there. All, all bets were off right there bro <laughs> just what the fuck man seriously what the fuck dude rambo the 2008 one with the uh, sylvester stallone was second in its first week that week which you and i were probably seeing at this time rather than oh, seeing yeah. the air i breathe the <laughs> shit <laughs> the shit movie with Catherine heigl 27 dresses was in third in its second week Matt Reeves's pretty goddamn good movie Cloverfield was in its second week in the number four spot. And the bag of putrid diarrhea Diane Lane vehicle called Untraceable rounded out the top five in its first week. <laughs> Side note, two of the all-time best movies ever made were playing this same time at the box office. There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. <laughs> they were in their fifth and twelve weeks respectively, but still. Jesus Tap dancing Christ, America. Meet the Spartans, you dumb motherfuckers. Anyway, this movie was in theaters for <laughs> <laughs> this movie was in theaters for 342 days and would go on to gross our lowest number yet, $25,775 domestically. Its $2.571 million international total brought its worldwide haul to $2.597 million. Or, in other words, a $9.403 million loss for Think Film movies. Did they ever go on to do anything after this? You know, they're still producing documentaries, no. so uh, there's that. I just, they haven't touched narrative other than, like, shitty horror movies, so. Uh, I think that they know, like, shitty horror movies, you can sell them really easily and get your money back, but, like, trying to do high-concept drama like this, obviously somebody wasn't paying attention when they greenlit this. So, yeah. As this domestic gross was so low, its placings are quite interesting. It is the 5,996th opening of a limited release movie. I'll say that again. 
It's of of limited release movies ever released. This movie is the five thousand nine hundred ninety sixth of those. It's really hard to find information like <laughs> reviews, any any kind of media on this movie. By the way, it's kind of like people wanted to forget it or something. <laughs> <laughs> Below this movie in that realm is the 2016 Korean action biopic called The Last Princess, and above it is the 2009 comedy horror schlockfest, Caesar and Otto's Summer Camp Massacre. No idea what the fuck this is, but it has a 3.7 on IMDb. 5,995 places above this movie is 2002's mega hit My Big Fat Greek Wedding with a mere $241,412,000 more in its gross. <laughs> All-time box office worldwide ranks this movie as the 23,850th movie of all time with 2007's Tilda Swinton drama Stephanie Daly below it, which is a fucking excellent movie, by the way. I was obsessed with Tilda for a while, and I watched a shitload of her movies. And above it is 2017's In Search of Fellini, which is crazy enough. I know the steady cam operator on this movie, so that's something. <laughs> I guess you could say the country that avoided this manipulative garbage that it is was Iceland with a $1,549 opening in gross. Side note, this movie was re-released in 2011 in Bolivia on September 29, 2011 and saw a $4,450 gross. Just why? Why re-release this movie in 2011 <laughs> Bolivia for only four grand? You know what I mean? Fucking insane. <laughs> As you'll remember from episode 23, Black Hat, the top grossing movie of all time in Iceland was the 2008 Icelandic film called White Night Wedding a comedy drama that made a killer $797,851 over a one-year release in seven theaters in Iceland. At an average cost of 769.18 Icelandic krona, or ISK, as is the abbreviation, or $11.75 American in 2008, surprisingly more than the cost of $8.61 American per ticket in 2015. That I really didn't understand was when I was doing the statistics on this. The cost of a ticket in Iceland was more expensive in 2007 than it was in 2015, like more than double. And that I didn't understand. I mean, they had their their whole economy like fucking crashed. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's true. At, at least they uh, put everybody point. in fucking prison. You know what I mean? Like that was the biggest thing. Uh, Dude, yeah. I was so proud of Iceland for doing that. Like we didn't fucking put one guy in prison for all that shit yeah. in 2008. But Iceland was like, nope, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. We're breaking up all the banks. I'm like, yeah, see, that's how you run a country, motherfucker. Somebody does wrong, you fucking spank them until they can't stand anymore. That's it. <laughs> but anyway, that brings total Icelandic asses and seats to 131.82 people saw this movie over its release schedule in Iceland. I'm pretty sure this is our lowest turnout yet. Just... Jesus, that's literally nobody. 131 people saw this movie. Like, that's really fucking bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, with a total population of 315,459 people in 2008, that means that 4.17 ten thousandths of Iceland's population saw this movie opening weekend. The Air I Breathe has a not-too-terrible 6.8 out of 10 with 33,339 votes on IMDb a 37 on Metacritic, and an unbelievably shitty 
10% on RottenTomatoes.com with a 61% audience score. This makes The Air I Breathe a full three points lower than fucking Gigli in its <laughs> aggregate on Rotten Tomatoes. And a full, get this, and a full 10 points less, Paul, than Cats. Fucking Cats yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. Just how, holy shit, that's awful. Cats does have this thing going for it where it's a lot more fun to hate on it than this movie. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That. It is, however, a full nine points above Left Behind. So that's something, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it ranks highest amongst females aged less than 18 with a 9.0 out of 10. Wow. You know, I never could have called that fucking demographic. And lowest amongst males aged less than 18 with a 1.0 out of 10. Talk about sides <laughs> of the fucking spectrum, dude. What the fuck? Crazy. This week, no amount of cosmic coincidence can explain the 3,883 people on IMDb that rated this a perfect fucking 10 best movie ever made. My favorite reviews begin with Karina Chicano from the Los Angeles Times. Karina subverts, quote, a stew of cheap irony, ponderous but meaningless allegory, violence and pretension. This movie is all borrowed style and calculated pandering. It does, however, get more ludicrous by the minute, so in that sense, it's good for an occasional laugh. Original score, 1.5 out of 5 stars. Catherine Showered of the Daily Telegraph in the UK musters, quote, Pretentious at best, risable for the rest of the time. This is most notable for Andy Garcia's staggeringly hammy cameo <laughs> as the opera-loving moneylender Fingers. Original score, 1.5 out of 4 stars. My last favorite review of the week comes from Eric Cohn of the New York Press. Eric shovels, quote, It's particularly frustrating to watch Whitaker, the strongest thespian of the bunch, Desperately mined for the gold in a narrative landslide. End quote. <laughs> Original score, one out of five stars. That's a pretty good metaphor right it's there. It's a good one, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lastly, The Air I Breathe is rated R for violence, language, and some sexual content slash nudity. So, Paul, Larry Littleton stands on home base. Larry holds a few distinctions here, including a distinction shared by episode 25 player Mike Potter. But the real question is, where do I start with little Larry here? The six foot one inch tall righty from Charlotte, North Carolina, debuted on April 12th, 1981, only to have his career end on May 26th that same year. That's 44 days long was his entire career in the MLB. Little Larry here didn't do his homework and arrived at bat 23 times in his 44 days as a left fielder in the MLB. This slack-jawed sack of shit started his career with the Cleveland Indians. Racist name, by the way. When the fuck are they going to change this? A.K.A. Washington Redskins, go fuck yourself. He started his career with a 6-2 loss and on the fucking bench for his last game, possibly why the Indians finally won against the Boston Red Sox on his final <laughs> game that fateful Tuesday afternoon. But before we hand down the most prestigious shit award to Little Larry, we have to go back a few years before his last game. It's Sunday, May 24th, 1981 in hot and sunny New York City. It's 4.30 p.m. and we are in the top of the ninth as the New York Yankees pitcher Bill Castro stands on the mound. 
Larry is feeling good about himself as he steps up to bat. The Indians lead the Yankees 12 to 5 as 53,874 fans look on from their Bronx seats. That's a stunning 93.6% full, by the way, our highest number yet. Mm. He he surveys Castro on the mound and thinks to himself, "Hmm, I'm 24 at bats in. We are slaying this shit. I got to do my team proud and bring in a homer." Castro winds up his first pitch to little Larry, a strike. Larry tries to shake it off. Little did he know this would be his final at-bat. Only two chances left to amaze manager Dave <laughs> Garcia. A second pitch, no hit. Larry is sweating it out, but resting assured that he surely he'd have more chances to amaze everyone in another game. While Larry still held hope he would go on to play in later games, a mere two days later his MLB dreams would come to a crashing end. 24 at-bats Larry has had, yet he hasn't scored one fucking hit. See, Paul, little Larry, much like Mike Potter from episode 25, holds the distinction of being the second only MLB player to hold the distinction of having a .000 (laughs) batting average. Larry, I want you to hear something. Here it is. Son, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass! (laughs) this is what happens larry this is it his final chance to show everyone he isn't a complete jizz stain of a human being so spoiler alert paul he aji pies this motherfucker just then just then (laughs) paul you wind up and you pitch this motherfucker to me paul i was uh reading the back of uh an instant ramen and I thought of an Asian proverb about how life is just a collection of emotions of you know, pleasure, <laughs> sorrow, happiness, and love. <laughs> so I'm going to make my premiere movie as a director okay. about those, those four things and make a movie that has nothing to do with any of them. And it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> it's fine. Sounds trendy. We're going to get the best B-list cast we can get together. <laughs> They're all recognizable names, so it feels like an A-list cast, you see. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, we're going to have Forrest Whitaker. He's going to be the black guy that gets shot by the police. <laughs> and, and we're going to get Andy Garcia. Guess nice. what he's going to do? What he, you know? Can you guess? He's going to be part of the mob? Yeah! How'd you guess? Oh, How'd you guess? nice. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Home yeah. Run. And, and then we're going to get Sarah Michelle Gellar as, as a pop star. You know, generic okay. pop star. Okay. And, and, She's and a Brendan. generic actress anyway, so it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brendan Fraser, he's going to be the guy that sees the future. Oh. And you know what he's going to do with his talent? What's that? He's going to work for Andy Garcia as an enforcer and oh, collect God. money on people. You know, instead of like winning the lottery or playing the stock right. market to doing something interesting, amass yeah. vast amounts of wealth. Sure. He's just going to like be on the streets and chase down people for. <laughs> Small amounts of money and beat yeah, people up. That's great. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, great. yeah. 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 So you're, right. you're getting it. You're getting it. And sure, then finally, yeah. Kevin Bacon is going to be the loser who just <laughs> loves some woman for his whole life, but she's married to his best friend. So he just kind of jerks off on the floor <laughs> and doesn't clean it up. I have one question about this. Does he use, <laughs> does he use his tears as lubricant? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think we got a movie got the here. The extra pal. salty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Great. So I figured that uh, 
based on all of these actors and already gone way past their peaks, we could probably make this for ten million dollars, maybe nice, maybe 11. nice. Yeah. yeah, we can get rid of this yeah. thing real cheap. Yeah, if it if it fails, we can just write it off anyway. It's just fucking dope. Yeah, figured. figured. <laughs> but, you know, at least we'll uh, have some strip club scenes and yeah. uh, some good yeah. stuff like that. Wait, wait, and, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. What is this movie about again? Uh, Asian proverbs and and Something. such. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mainly, Sounds complicated. I just wanna hang I'm out. sure you're gonna. I, wanna, okay, I yeah. just want to hang out with the strippers. That's the main. Right. Great. Main thing that I want to do, and <laughs> so it'll be great. Sounds great. Okay. Great. Here's your money. Get the fuck out of my office. Come back right. when you uh, fail terribly, and I have to write this thing <laughs> off on my taxes. So. Paul, right away, one of the things that you didn't get because you had the German copy, unfortunately, is that at the beginning, there is an inspirational quote. I don't remember who the fuck the quote was from, but it's just some random inspirational quote. And it's like, you look at it and it's like, oh, that's the kind of thing that you might see framed in a fucking picture frame at Bed Bath & Beyond for some <laughs> white housewife to put on her wall. I got a real problem with the way that this movie opens. Like, I'm sure that along your research, maybe you came across this, but this guy was like a music video director and you can see it in his style, uh, right? But anyway, it's like the uh, opening part of this movie, the opening credits, it's like grainy, over-tinted streets and like jagged edits. Like, I know that yeah. this movie is going to be edgy as shit, right? But then the rest of it is just completely fucking like conventional. Like, there's nothing interesting yeah. about the way it's edited or shot. It's all completely conventional other than that opening moment. Anyway, the opening music of this, whatever the fuck that song is over the opening credits, <laughs> sucks. It's, it's terrible. Angsty post-grunge alternative rock. Right, right. Right. Yeah, but I, mean, I was wondering if, if he like pulled that song straight out of like 1992 or something like that, but no, it was actually made in 2003. So oh, like, oh, God, that's even worse. Yeah, that's sad. But, dude, you know, <laughs> a, a good opening montage of a movie tells the story of the world which you're about to experience, right? This is just a bunch of abstracted, like, lo-fi images that look like some sort of skate video. Like, the, it does yeah. nothing to do with the rest of it. Wait, 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 wait. So, you said that you liked this movie and it was a good I actually pleasure do like this movie. Before I continue, I will say that this is a guilty pleasure of mine. All right, I all don't right. know. I it. honestly do not know why. I can see it in my brain and I can think to myself as I'm watching it, this is pretentious as shit and it's fucking boring, but there's something about this movie that I like and I don't know what it is. Like, I really don't. And it's definitely not the ending because the ending is so <laughs> ham-fistedly like strung together that it yeah. just fucks up anything that would have been good in this movie otherwise. The ending completely betrays anything that would have been good. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I mean, Forrest Whitaker has a good performance despite working with the script that makes no yeah. sense. And then yeah. I think uh, Brendan Fraser actually does a decent job. Like, yeah. feel a little sympathy for his character even though sure. it doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, there's a couple decent performances yeah. that uh Yeah, Emil Hirsch make... is not one of them. Emil <laughs> Hirsch fucks this movie up. Well, I mean, you want to hate him and he's sure. a little shit, so you hate him, so he does his job good enough. I and I, I bet Quentin Tarantino saw him in this movie and he was like, Oh, that's who I want for <laughs> Inglorious Bastards, because goddamn I hate that bastard. Look at him. Wait, who is he in Inglorious Bastards? He's the uh, the German sniper. No, he's who not. Is, 
Wait. No, he's not. That's not him? No? That's Dan- that's Daniel Briel, dude. Oh, you're right. You're right. I apologize <laughs> to all involved then. They look very similar. They look yeah, very they kind of do, except Emil Hirsch has this like puffy gopher face going on, so <laughs> that's the difference. <laughs> anyway, I, I got a real problem in this movie with John Cho randomly being in this movie. I know that John at this time wasn't <laughs> a fucking like thing, you know? But like him showing up Wait. in this random role at the beginning, what? Wait, th- wasn't this uh, like uh, post Harold and Kumar? You're right. Two two thousand four was Harold and Kumar, I think. Yeah, yeah. And this was two thousand seven. So yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, yeah. He sticks out him. pretty. He sticks <laughs> yeah. out like a sore thumb in this movie. Yeah, he, does. he does make a passable like douchebag stockbroker. <laughs> so big that all those guys are like so overplayed. It's like so fucking yeah. terrible. It seems like John <laughs> Cho even knows it when he's looking around in the movie. You can see him being like. Am I overdoing this? Like, fuck, man. Did I overdo that? (laughs) (laughs) Trying to find out why he's in this movie. Dude, a little problem with screenwriting here, okay? Like, near the beginning of the movie, Frazier says to Forrest, when they're sitting down at the fucking uh, table at Forrest's work or whatever, Frazier looks at Forrest and he says, sometimes risking everything is the only choice you have, right? Listen to it. Sometimes risking everything is the only choice you have. To which Forrest replies, you aren't really taking any sort of chance, though. But word choice is wrong here. Frazier says risk. Forrest says chance. I know that this is a little thing, but wouldn't Forrest's line be more impactful if he used the same word Frazier did by saying you aren't really taking any sort of risk? Because that's what fucking Brendan Frazier just <laughs> said was risk. It's like they shot these two scenes without the actors in the same scene and they forgot what the fuck word yeah. they used. I'm still trying to figure out what Fortis Whitaker actually does in this movie. Like I think what he's supposed job. to be a stockbroker, dude, because he he's talking to him or like an investment banker of some kind. Yeah. Because as Frazier's talking to him, he says like same thing, small investments, small return, blah 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 blah, not a lot of risk, you know? I think that's what he does. He's supposed to be a fucking stockbroker, but not in that shitty office, but whatever. <laughs> like who goes to their broker and they just walk into a massive cube farm with some a bunch of people and hand over you know thirty thousand dollars of cash to buy some it doesn't make any fucking sense that's exactly my next point though (laughs) is that if if frazier is giving forrest cash to invest in the market right he is required by law to report any cash transactions over ten thousand dollars is suspicious right like this is a 9-11 anti-terrorism law but he just is able to walk out of the poorly designed trade floor with cash like i don't fucking understand this moment like it's just it's so beyond me i'm like he's just giving you envelopes with cash and you're not saying anything about it and this is six years after 9-11 when the patriot act was being (laughs) ratified significantly in order to overreach in the financial markets and i'm like this is exactly what he wouldn't want to do especially being you know a person of color you don't really want to like piss off department mm. of homeland security yeah, they that. might do a harold and kumar <laughs> and send you to guantanamo bay you know what i mean <laughs> but dude office douchebags walk into the bathroom and they do a lot of info dumping and douching around in the bathroom like they literally lay out the whole fucking story of <laughs> forrest whitaker and like speak in like these terms that no one would speak in He's like, on top of the fact that John Cho looks underneath the bathroom stall and he doesn't see Forrest's feet, and he's like, okay, this place is the real deal. 
make sure like almost like he's fucking telling the audience directly to the camera like make sure you're placing your bets at the bookies we're going to the bookies for some real gambling (laughs) (laughs) it's like jesus christ who fucking talks like this dude if this was my conversation with you and i pulled you aside i'd be like hey man tonight we're on just keep your shit straight don't make any waves for me all right that's it and then you and i we're going to the bookies and we're gonna bet on what's the name of the horse again butterfly and it's a fixed horse race right that's illegal (laughs) correct okay (laughs) it's pretty bad it's it's probably one of the worst scenes in the movie is just that moment italian mob stereotype behind the counter says forrest can borrow money from the house to pay for his debt if he doesn't have $50,000 available on his card, right? But why would Forrest go from saying that he wants 10 to 20 to 50 if he didn't have that available and didn't know borrowing on the house was allowed prior to him placing his bet? Oh, right, because contrivance is the reason why this movie exists. Who goes it, there to an illegal story. bookies and pays with a credit card? I know. That's what I know. <laughs> I know. That's a whole nother thing. But of course, of course, Forrest loses as we dolly in fast on Forrest. But guess what? As we're dollying fast in on Forrest trying to do a Martin Scorsese, the fucking first assistant camera on this movie can't pull focus. And there is a focus buzz (laughs) on fucking Forrest Whitaker's face. And I'm like, that was the best take. What the fuck? He's out of focus for half the shot. If there's anything that I've learned from watching movies is that you don't borrow money from the mob. Like that's like the number one rule that you obviously learn after yeah. watching three or four movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> you don't borrow money from the mob, and he does it. He just walks in, and borrows money. You don't do that, man. Come on. He thought it Shit. was a good idea. He could have. I mean, how easy would it be if he just maxed out his credit card? Because yeah. somehow the bookies take credit card and just gone with that. You know, it, it's yeah. easy. And then all he needed to do was claim with his credit card company that his fucking card was stolen. You yeah, know what I mean? Fraud, right? Done. Done. <laughs> <laughs> but dude, Forrest is immediately taken back to a room where a guy is getting beat to shit by a bunch of guys wearing black. Of course, because bad guys always wear black. Duh. But why would Andy Garcia's character called Fingers come to his illegal establishment to do the dirty work of cutting off Fingers himself? And then he gets angry he has to be the bad guy rather than deal with gambling junkies not being able to pay. But he owns an illegal gambling outfit. Like, surely he knows this is part of the risk of having the place with a little dirty work involved. You know what I mean? But no, he, like, he gets all pissed off and has something to say about it. And I'm just like, dude, this is bad screenwriting. Like, this is really bad screenwriting. <laughs> but he, he cuts off a finger and says, each day you're late. I cut off a finger. But if the man doesn't have any way to pay, what if the guy never pays? Like, he loses fingers, probably gets killed, and fingers is out the 50 grand? Like, on top of however he is paying for Frazier, that seems like a bad business model. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's fucking crazy. You gotta have consequences for not paying. I get that. But, I mean, wouldn't Forrest know something about that? There would be some sort of vibe like that when he walks in. But everything in that illegal gambling operation seems pretty welcoming. You know what I mean? It's it's, Sure, it's dimly lit and there's a greaseball sitting behind the counter. But it's not that foreboding. You know what I mean? (laughs) But, dude, Forrest goes into his quickly edited montage to explain to the non-existent audience 
his plan to rob the bank, right? But two questions. The first is, why doesn't he wear a mask, right, when he goes in there? <laughs> right. And second, why does he pull out his gun outside and stare at it in plain view of everybody in the fucking bank and everybody in the fucking plaza? He pulls it out and looks at it. Why? So that way we can establish that he has a gun? Like, I don't fucking get it. We're going to figure that out in two minutes when he walks in and pulls yeah. the gun out and shoots it in the ceiling. Also, why does he run down the street with a gun in his hand? Like, he surely has to know that if he has a bag of money in his hand and he's running away from a fucking <laughs> bank robbery, you probably should put the gun away as you're running. That way they're not like, oh, look, a black guy with a gun. The number one thing that police like to shoot. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, seems kind of like a problem. I mean, the whole script is set up to make it look like he doesn't actually know what he's doing. Maybe... I don't know, but then he has all this, like, it's all planned out according to him, but yeah, the, the right. like, basic things, like, you don't actually need a gun to rob a bank, right. or wear a mask, or well, something to cover up your identity, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whatever. Fuck. But, no. dude, how is Forrest so stupid as to drive around the block on the stolen moped, only to somehow drive back to the bank he just robbed? right in front of the arms of law enforcement. And why the fuck does he run up to the roof where he knows he is trapped? Did he really think the police would forget that he ran into the building and never came out? Like, what is his endgame here? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a little thing, but, dude, yeah. every single cop has a scope on their weapon, right, in the scene? Yeah. But every scope is not mounted correctly or squarely on their weapons. If you look, they're like tilted like this, where like the, the two siding rails or whatever, the siding knobs are like crooked. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, inside the scope, this, the reticle would be an X <laughs> rather than a T if it was yeah. like that. Good but luck. regardless. So, how is it that a man trapped on a roof with a snub nose 38 that can't hit a target that's 10 feet away from you, like needs to be shot dead by police behind cover oh. with rifles. I got, I I got one answer for you, Paul. <laughs> well, we, we all know the just... answer. You <laughs> <laughs> know the black, answer. Paul. Oh my God. <laughs> but dude, the sound design, sound design in this scene is so fucking terrible. Like the weapons fire from the cops is really flat. It sounds like, oh, I don't know, quarter loads from, I don't know, a fucking movie set that they just use the fucking terrible quarter loads. I thought they, like, chose to edit out the the gunshots from all the police things. But (laughs) what makes no sense to me is why he, like, breaks out laughing with the camera sweeping circles around him and then... Because they needed that shot. And the His music name is too. happiness, dude. <laughs> oh, happiness. That makes That's why. Sense. They start off with him when they go to happiness that he's crying and he's upset. And now they actually need to show him happy as he fucking dies. Like, that's the oh, whole okay. point yeah, of this little sense. episode. Flashback <laughs> on Fraser's story shows him telling everyone how he can see the future. But his childhood friend gets knocked over and smashes his head on broken glass, killing him. So now the bullies are guilty of manslaughter, if not murder. (laughs) Like, how did he not see this if he can see the future? I know that he has, like, some explanation of, like, he is more of, like, an observer at this point. He can't, like, change the future. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. You literally can see the future, you dumb son of a bitch. (laughs) But, dude, 
Emil Hirsch. Let's talk about Emil Hirsch oh, here God. for a second. He is such a fucking douchebag. Like, he uses the N-word in this movie, and Andy Garcia and company are listening to really awful hit music that Garcia oh, called man. great. <laughs> I think maybe this director has a beef with non-indie prog rock or something, and uh, he is making fun of cheap, generic pop, pop music. music. Most likely. But, I mean, all of his musical choices in this movie kind of suck, too. So, mm -hmm. he's not one to judge. I'm going to... But, dude, Garcia talks about how a guy that owed him money traded a pop star's management to him by way of payment, right? How? It's not like there are legal yeah. contracts binding <laughs> management or anything. But better yet, better yet, if manager has this major client that has great sales on music, wouldn't he just have money? Like, even if he doesn't, yeah. the contract is worth nothing. And the 5% deadbeat manager is supposed to get doesn't change from his hand to Garcia's hand. <laughs> it's still 5%. Like, I don't fucking get yeah. it. This movie treats a managerial contract like indentured yeah. servitude somehow. Yeah. And it just makes no sense, especially what happens later in the movie with right. Andy Garcia right. forcing her to get an abortion because <laughs> he's her manager. I mean, what the right. fuck? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> this movie, dude, it can't decide whether it's a comedy or a drama. Like, it's played straight. But I'm not sure when it's supposed to be funny. You know what I mean? Especially with like Emil Hirsch's scenes. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck's going on there. But why do yeah. bad guys in movies always wear leather jackets? This is something that we were talking about previously with Gigli. Like, oh, what does a bad guy in the mob wear? Oh, obviously a leather jacket and yeah. a bowling shirt. You know? <laughs> it's the same thing in this. Bad guys wearing leather jackets again. But when they go to the strip club, Kelly who pays the protection money, right? But she does it at the bar in plain sight of everyone from an envelope of cash sitting on the bar. Like, wouldn't she want to do that in like a back room where people couldn't see her associating with these known criminals? <laughs> it's a little side note. But the two girls that went upstairs with meal are really fucked up, right? Like, they're stumbling around. You see how fucked up they are. Despite the fact that Frazier said that he'll be back in 40 minutes to Kelly Who. Like, how can she be this fucked up in less than 40 minutes? Like, what exactly are they doing to get that fucked up know. in less than 40 minutes? Yeah, that whole thing just doesn't make any sense to me. Where... And why 40 minutes, man? That's <laughs> an unusually specific number. Well, he can see the future. He knows that's when he I needs guess. to be back. And I mean, maybe you're actually gonna... right there, Paul. I, I don't know. Maybe I have a wank that. in the alley in the meantime. <laughs> I don't know. But, dude, why did Frazier and Emil run out through the kitchen, right? Like, the front door was literally the closest door to them. Oh, right, because kitchen fight scene cliche. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. That makes sense. Makes sense. Frazier goes on all these, like, voiceover monologues, and they're being dictated to who? The non-existent audience again? I fucking hate this shit. Like, if you're going to do, like, some third-person omniscient, like, fucking voiceover shit that's directed at the audience... Do not speak directly about the actions which you're about to see. Otherwise, it's just this stupid voiceover, <laughs> which has no point in the movie. Frazier drops a meal at the airport, right? And monologues about how he could make someone's life better, to which we see a meal letting people in front of him in line. Or worse, when we see his scarred face, right? 
But what was the great act of life-changing shit that Frazier did that challenged Emil and changed him from the careless asshole to a guy who was courteous to old people at the airport? I guess saving him from Russian mobsters at the club? Also, Russian mobsters cliche. Ha-ha! <laughs> but dude, the balding manager asshole of Sarah Michelle Gellar's character says about the host of the TV show that, quote, he will be wiping asses for the rest of his life by the time that I'm done with him, end quote. I hate cliche lines like this, right? Because this guy is a fucking talent manager, not the head of a network or something. Like, what the fuck could he possibly do to kick this guy off of some hit TV show? Fucking ridiculous. I don't know. I don't know. But the manager walks into a room with Garcia holding a Panavision camera, right? And he's, like, framed up on Brendan Fraser, and Garcia remarks, You ruined my shot. But what was he shooting? Like a B-roll shot of Fraser just standing in a stage somewhere? What the fuck is he talking about? That's... Let me look up the... Dip. Oh, that's humor, Gabe. He was messing around. Oh, shit. Just, I just missed a regular that. guy, you know? When he's not cutting people's fingers off and... Yeah, he's just goofing around with that the he, camera. He owns people because he has a management contract. Management contract. contract. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if we are supposed to sympathize with Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, her acting like a spoiled socialite princess and dancing around while getting drunk doesn't really make her relatable, likable, or her music any less irritable. <laughs> yeah, I know. The music in this movie, it's, uh, it's pretty terrible. Yeah. But she does have an arc where she's not so much of a shallow bitch in the end. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's debatable. After she goes through all the suffering of sitting around and not leaving <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the beckdale test in a second with her but okay. <laughs> dude the flashback of her dad dancing in the rain and getting hit by a car is not yeah. enough for me to care about her yet like neither is her failing oh, yeah. the beckdale test that is the daddy and that, any other man around her defines every decision that she makes that flashback is funny because the it started and you're like oh he's gonna get hit by a car immediately when you see that movie and then he starts yeah. dancing in the rain you're like oh it's even more obvious now and then he gets hit by a car and you're like, wow, <laughs> didn't see that coming didn't see that I mean, coming yeah <laughs> But do Garcia taking Sarah's management contract as means of payment means he's essentially pimping her talent, right? But if her manager did use all her money to try to pay back Garcia, Geller would still be able to go to the cops. Like, Garcia doesn't have yeah. anything over her yeah, to leverage her <laughs> compliance other than threats of violence. Like, she could very easily go to the cops. But yeah, whatever, she, you know, she's, for she's just a weak female <laughs> because she isn't like she fails the Becktail test and men have all the control over her because that's what this story needed. Apparently was a weak female and like we're supposed to latch on her for some <laughs> fucking reason. But dude, Fraser stashes Sarah at his place, right? But wouldn't that be the first place that fingers and everyone else would look is talking to the guy that's supposed to be looking for her and maybe surveilling him and be like, hey. You know, some uh, delivery guy keeps going there in the middle of the day in order to make, like, food deliveries <laughs> or whatever. You know, like, I think that they would see this kind of shit. He's like, don't touch anything. And he leaves. And immediately she starts going through all of his stuff. Touches everything. Yeah. And then she starts rearranging his fucking furniture. Who the fuck <laughs> does that? God damn it. Told you not to touch anything. What the <laughs> fuck do you do? You just touch everything. Fucking ruin the flow of the whole goddamn place, man. What the, the feng shui's all fucked up now, man. 
Also, dude, what was the point of Emil's character? Like, he shows up, he's irritating, and he's gone. Like, what the actual fuck was the point of his character? Uh, yeah, he's the uh, the catalyst character, I guess. I mean, I guess while he's with Brendan Frazier, that's that moment that Brendan doesn't see the future actually happening, and then he falls and gets the shit kicked out of him. But I'm like, that had nothing to do with Emil's actions. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just some fucking coincidence. God damn it, these fucking coincidences. <laughs> but dude, what kind of mob tough guy comes home with a gaping, bleeding hole in his arm to wash it off? Like, you figure somebody would see this guy, like, stumbling with this gaping wound in his arm, like, trying to go inside of his own apartment. Might attract a little bit of attention. But also, I know mob soldiers are just normal people like me and you and all. But do they come home to unwind? Like, always seem like they're, like, drug dealers and wouldn't know about interior design or anything. Like, they would just be, like, it would just be, like, this fucking place that has a cot sitting in the middle of it that they can sleep on. And that's it. You know, not to mention that that house probably wouldn't be rented in their name so as to, I don't know, somebody knew where they lived, they might go and fuck them up. You know what I mean? I mean, honestly, I would be in the mob just for the furniture. I mean, you get some good shit. You get all those, like, free stolen shipments of sure. uh, shipping containers full of, sure. like, really nice oak furniture and everything. Absolutely. So, I mean, Do you like yeah, oak, why... Jimmy? Are you an oak man? <laughs> yeah, oak's, oak's nice. Oak's nice. <laughs> Sarah starts kissing Frasier, right? She says, as you know, scars are the roadmap to the soul, right? So was it that Emile's only purpose in this movie was to provide that little tidbit to set the stage for them fucking? Like, if so, the scene never needed to exist. I can't explain this piece of shit. <laughs> I can't explain it. But, dude, Sarah answers the phone in Frasier's apartment as she is napping, and it just so happens to be Garcia. Because, sure, why not? Another coincidence. I mean, it makes sense, given her, like, insistence that she needs to fuck with this furniture, yeah, that she's going to answer the phone. phone. God yeah. damn. <laughs> she realizes who it was when she answered the phone, and then she stays there. She Long enough leave. for them to get to her, at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because obviously they had a bunch of people sitting out of the, of the apartment, just right. waiting for her. Right. No, obviously. she could have fucking walked away and <laughs> been fine. But instead, she just sits there and waits for them. Because she is a useless woman character that fails the <laughs> Bechtel test and needs men to cause forward momentum in her story. If Frazier walks into his apartment and Sarah is sitting in his apartment in the middle of his front room and she hears him come in, why couldn't she scream out to alert him? Why did she have to wait for him to turn on the light and see her? <laughs> oh right because bad screenwriting <laughs> and why couldn't he see the future in this in this instance i know i, mean, I know it, it doesn't matter his seeing the future is a fucking like device that they use when it's convenient for them and then when it's not uh, convenient for them they're like oh yeah. well you know obviously we need drama sense. here so yeah, okay all right that's good but dude Garcia gets moody by the window and starts crying because he feels like sarah turned his friend frazier against him right so now he's jealous of their friendship? Like, is he really that petty of a fuck that that's the reason why he's there? I know that he's like maybe just trying to use that as some excuse and that's supposed to make him scarier in some way or something. But it doesn't. It just fucking like doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but he shoots Frazier several times on the floor as they cut to the insert of the shells falling, right? But they are clearly blanks with crimped ends. 
And I'm like, they literally could have dropped real shells for this shot, but they were lazy and they didn't. Like, who the fuck is the prop master on this movie? You useless pile of shit. Frazier's dying wish is that he knows Trista's real name, right? Sarah Michelle Gellar's real name. She whispers it in his ear. But if that is the most interesting thing about her character, <laughs> maybe she's a bad character and you should rewrite Wait, that character. No, no, no. We we know her her interesting trait is that she has a rare blood type. Rare blood type. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> Wait, what was her real name? I didn't hear it in the movie. I was They didn't say. It was it oh. was uh, it was quiet. It was like they were yeah. trying to do a fucking uh lost in translation moment, you know? Oh. What if she just said fuck you? Die. <laughs> Die, bitch. <laughs> It'd be great. That's why he has that moment of realization on his face where he's like, <laughs> fucking dies. <laughs> Enter Kevin Bacon. His whole opening monologue to the non existent audience again tells how he's been in love with his best friend's wife, and this leads to a very boring scene of him being a third wheel. <laughs> These people are in their mid to late 30s, but this motherfucker is still stuck on his best friend's wife. He's exactly what the FBI looks for in a serial killer. Single white male, unattached, between 25 and 37, Christian upbringing, unattached, single male. Exactly what they look for with a serial killer. Bacon's long unrequited love, Gina, played by Delpy, is a snake venom researcher working on hemophilia, right? And it just so happens that she gets bit by the snake, and she just so happens to be an extremely rare blood type that no one has because contrivances in order to make this work. I was like, okay, this has got to be bullshit, right? The whole thing about rare blood types and needing a transfusion to cure snake poisoning but I looked into it. A blood transfusion Real. can help with uh, certain pit vipers, which I think they implied that it was. Right. So I think the, the dude actually looked up some some a rare blood types. Yeah, yeah, I and, know, and made it made it real so but what's what's hard about it paul is that all that. these coincidences all these coincidences happen within three minutes of meeting kevin bacon's character it's like okay okay but a few seconds later another contrivance after bacon tries to break into the blood bank to search for the blood the nurse is literally yelling at him that he doesn't have and he thrashes perfectly good blood that could have saved other people's lives he sits down, though. He sits down to cool down and watches an interview with Sarah's character from earlier in the flick. And it just so happens to be a part oh, that we didn't see shit. in the earlier yeah, scene. Yeah. <laughs> Contrived editing here. That she just has the exact blood type that he needs for his unrequited love. Sarah is going to shoot a music video and her manager tells her that she talked to the director and that he agreed to do no more than two full run-throughs of the song. You can't shoot a music video like that. <laughs> I don't give a fuck what kind of star she is. Like, I've done plenty of music videos over the years, and you are sick and tired of hearing the song by the end of the music video because you fucking... It's usually only like a week or two that you're on a music video. But over the course of that time period, you hear the song probably six or seven hundred times in order to do the fucking thing. You can't do two full run-throughs of the fucking song in a day and make your day. That's like the first five minutes of the day, and then you're just going to call it? Fuck you. You don't know what you're talking about. And you're a music video director, you piece of shit. You know that this is wrong, but you put it in there anyway. 
Regardless, Bacon rushes her as she's standing outside, right? As she's going to be whisked off in a plane to be rescued from a man. Bechtel test fail number 65, by the way. Even if he is concerned and needs her blood, rushing her like a rabid dog is the last thing that will help in order to get Hey, hey lady, give me your fucking blood. Give me your fucking blood. I did that. I did that blood. Yeah. yeah. You Tell don't, me you how don't that's that. supposed to work. <laughs> You don't do that to someone you meet on yeah. the street there. How'd that work out for you, by the way? <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> but contrivances intensify as Sarah is revealed to be pregnant with Fraser's baby, right? And Garcia oh, yells at her. Shit. Yells at her that she will get an abortion. But again, she's her own human and Garcia is not family. So no doctor would do the abortion without her consent. You know what I mean? Unless he's like, oh, wait, no, this movie was shot in Mexico, so that's actually a thing that you can do. <laughs> this leads me to the hack attack of the week and double dumb fuck moment in one note, okay? God this damn. is a triple whammy, motherfucker. Oh. We've never done this before. So I want to talk about the scene on the roof with Sarah and Kevin Bacon, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah decides... She's going to throw herself from the roof because the bad guys that were tracking her every move before just so happen to be not watching her at this exact moment that she can wander out of her room and go up to the fucking roof. <laughs> and she happens to be draped in a wispy linen sheet that would not be in a hospital whatsoever. <laughs> but just as Kevin Bacon drives up to see her on the roof and his best thought is to run to the roof up God knows how many stairs, just in enough time to reach her and grab her sheet and hang on a fucking antenna off the edge of the roof in order to save her. She grabs his arm, but how the fuck did he have enough strength to pull her up past that point? And how the fuck did he get back on the roof with her? This is a real question. Like, did he yeah. somehow beefcake her fucking ass with the left arm and, like, or did he, like, throw her like he's Dr. J with a fucking hook shot from the three-point line? And he, like, hooked her onto the roof? I was confused by yeah, all of this. Oh, but he has a really touching line where he's like, I need you. And she's like, what? And, of course, he just really wants her for her blood. She's a fucking meat sack to him. But <laughs> a anyway. blood bag, in the words of Mad Max. <laughs> but, but it's so touching, isn't it? So sure. Touching. Sure, but I mean that's 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 a triple whammy right there, bro. Like the fucking <laughs> stupidity, dude. And how the fuck did Kevin Bacon save her from jumping? If she jumped and her intention was to die, why did she hold on to her scarf so that Kevin could grab it and save no. her? Wouldn't she just have slipped through it and plummeted to her death? Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. And how fast is Kevin Bacon up the stairs, man? He fucking runs well, like he's fucking I mean, Flojo. He, he is a man telling her what to do, so she has to go. There it is. It. Sure. Oh, okay. There it is. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Okay. So all this dramatic shit happens, and Garcia and his henchmen still aren't around long enough for Bacon to give Sarah his car so that way she can get out of town. Seems like a coincidence that they still aren't there. Like, why the fuck are they just leaving her alone? For hours at a time, and she still hasn't called the cops, and still hasn't fucking told anybody anything. <laughs> All right, because Beckdale test, Beckdale test failure, one after the other. So if Sarah checks herself out of the hospital and Garcia is storming in to see her, why wouldn't he be allowed by the staff in to enter an empty hospital room? 
Like they know it's empty, but they are like yelling at him that he can't go in there. And I'm like, it's empty. There's yeah. no fucking like violation also, happening. Here. He was also already in there. I mean, previous scene when he tells yeah. him. Yeah. And on gonna... top of the fact, like how the fuck did he get in there in the first scene? Like the first thing that they ask <laughs> you when somebody is hospitalized, are you a family member? Even if he lied and said yes, and he's got these other two fucking pimps behind him too. He's like, well, who are these two guys? Oh, they're her cousins. Yeah, right. Like one of them's black and like, what the fuck? <laughs> but whatever. Lo and behold, she crashes into Forrest as he runs from the bank, right? The previous scene that we saw in the whole movie comes full circle at this point. Oh, shit. And she starts bawling uncontrollably. Like, because again, Beckdale Tess says she has to have all of her reactions and choices <laughs> controlled by what men do to her in her life, especially when Forrest throws the bag off the roof and it lands on her fucking car roof for some reason. And the police don't notice any of this. And she can take this money, likely marked money, with her and her new life. But she still isn't, like, recognized and the police aren't around the fucking building. Like, it's literally off the edge of the building. They would have a fucking perimeter set up and see the <laughs> shit come off the roof and land on her car. But even if you were to tell me that all that was somehow miracled into existence... Earlier in the movie, she says that everywhere she goes, she can't help but somebody recognize her. But she's strolling through the airport in slow motion at the end of the movie, and nobody is recognizing her, and nobody <laughs> is walking up to her, and she's not being able to walk anywhere without somebody noticing her, but all of a sudden, now that doesn't apply, because reasons, this is the new her, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. What I don't get about this whole timeline thing is that Brendan Fraser gets shot by Andy Garcia, but then in Forrest Whitaker's storyline, Brendan Fraser comes and gives him the gun, and then the next day he goes and robs a bank. So what the fuck? Doesn't make any right. sense. But somehow in the time period between him getting shot by Andy Garcia's character and the very next day when supposedly fucking Brendan Fraser and somehow Brendan Fraser's still alive at this point. <laughs> She's yeah. like pregnant as well. Like there's like this four week time period in between those two <laughs> scenes in one day that just yeah. doesn't oh, yeah, that's fucking right. make no, any it... sense. She would have had to have missed at least one <laughs> period, which is four weeks from her pre and even if she fucked like the day before she was supposed to get her period, she's three yeah. weeks pregnant. She would have already missed a period, which means that it was at least a month until she yeah. was in the hospital and they found out that she was pregnant. And Forrest Whitaker only had two weeks to pay the thing. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they fucked up. Doesn't make any time. sense. I know. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense in the timeline. But I got a bigger question for you, Paul. The big question in this movie, the whole, like, what have you in order to get to this point, all of these people died or risked their lives so that a spoiled pop star can reimagine her life <laughs> with a fresh start of stolen cash. Is that the point of this movie? That and everyone dies, or at least people that are nice to you. Yeah, they gotta die, obviously. But <laughs> you know what? Fuck you, movie. Contrivances <laughs> at the end are way too much to actually make any sense. But dude, I, I, w I want to bring something up here because it's one of the honest truth things on why I like this movie. Is that this movie gets a tremendous amount of help from the score by Marcelo Zarvas. Like, if it wasn't for this score... I don't think that any of these scenes would play with any emotional weight as that they had intended. Yeah, see, to me, the score is overly manipulative. Oh, sure. Absolutely. It pisses me off. <laughs> so, 
has the opposite effect. It is cloying, but it's not bad. You know what I mean? Like, it's still well orchestrated. It's still well thought out. Even though it's fucking cloying, it's not musically bad like fucking, sure. uh, <laughs> no, uh, Left Behind. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'll give you that. Like, the score is good, but then you're watching what's happening on the screen. And you're like, fuck yeah. you, Yeah, movie. it's manipulative. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to give you this bullshit. Yeah. You know what? Over throughout all this, dude, nobody ate anything in this movie, so I got to leave my sandwich oh, beef at the end of the podcast oh, again. Damn. This leads me to my sandwich beef of the week, people. <laughs> I want to talk about bar bacon in Hell's Kitchen, Okay. This place is awesome, all right? Fucking bacon on everything. Very not kosher or halal, but I want to talk <laughs> about the law of supply and demand. No, this didn't become an economics podcast. Rather, I want to talk about a bacon milkshake. Okay, look. Mm. I know it isn't a sandwich per se, but because it's Polonized podcast, I'll talk about whatever the fuck I want to, okay? Anyway. This place has a bacon milkshake. That's right. Vanilla ice cream, milk, maple glazed bacon. Blend that motherfucker and give it to me with a bulb of straw so that way I can deep throat a tall glass of cow and pork fat. <laughs> Is the bacon like completely like pulverized. chopped up, pulverized? pulverized. Or are there yeah. like little bits? You get little like bits. Chunks. That's why they give you the bulb of straw, you know, in case they miss the little right. bits. So that way you can get uh -huh. little bits. Little bits. <laughs> Put it in your mouth, you piece of shit. <laughs> but, dude, I don't care if this is akin to being a fucking Caesar and indulging in every hedonistic vice that I can, but this shit was delicious, okay? I would go here every chance I got for the first couple years that I lived here. Then there was a lapse in my attendance for a couple years where I just didn't find myself in Hell's Kitchen often enough to justify a trek to 9th and 55th Street, which is now permanently closed, apparently. Now I gotta schlep my ass to the fucking tourist trap that is Union Square to dig on swine, but I digress. One day in 2018, when I was doing a movie called Someone Great for Netflix, we were within a couple blocks of Bar Bacon for a couple days, right? So the first day we were shooting near there, and I'm stoked. More stoked than if my second wife, Rachel McAdams, asked me to marry her, right? I'm fucking <laughs> pumped. So I run over there on lunch and order my favorites. Bacon flight to start, which is like six different kinds of bacon. There's like jalapeno, <laughs> maple bacon, like all this shit. The bar bacon burger with Kentucky fried bacon, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's bacon that's breaded and fried like fried chicken on top of my burger. A side of the bourbon cornbread with maple butter and, of course, the bacon milkshake, right? This motherfucking waiter stops me in the middle of speaking my childlike giddy voice of an order and informs me we don't have the bacon milkshake anymore. I just stare at him with blank eyes like he killed a relative of mine, right? We sit in an uncomfortable silence for what seemed like an eternity. And once again... Angry, not meaning to be a dick, Gabe came out. I asked simply, you have maple glazed bacon still, right? And he says, yes. You have vanilla ice cream still, right? Yes. So take the bacon, take the ice cream, put them in your fucking milkshake blender and spin that motherfucker till the big bits disappear, right? I tell him this and he just stares at me in disbelief that I'm talking to him this way. <laughs> and I stare back. I stare back, shocked at my own hangry nature when it comes out to bacon. But here's the kicker. 
Rather than a crazy, hangry man's suggestion, this motherfucker doubles down on the asshole game and says in a very measured tone, we don't have the milkshake anymore. <laughs> Just like uh, Brendan Gleeson in, uh, in in Bruges when he's like tapping uh, Ralph Fiennes' yeah. forehead. We don't have the bacon milkshake anymore and i glassed him up and i realized that this guy was gonna wipe his taint on my burger bun i knew it <laughs> so i replied okay as he rushed off to get my order right upon reflection that burger did have a bit of vinegar that day and <laughs> it was kind of nasty and it was probably a mistake on my part in order to do that but i did it anyway but you know what dude i only have one thing to say on this guy okay those are good burgers, Walter. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. <laughs> anyway, that is my sandwich beef for this week, people. So, Paul, tell me gut reaction. I don't remember if you had seen this movie previously. No, I've never seen it before. Oh, shit. I thought you saw this with me. To me, it's the worst part of any movie in that it's boring. I mean, not that, a lot happens. That really, really just makes me hate the fact that I spent like an hour and a half watching <laughs> it. So I give it two stars. Whoa! Two, stars. two out of ten or two out of five? Two out of ten. Two out of ten. Jesus, man, that's harsh. Is it? Is it gay? Uh, all right. So. <laughs> With my soft spot talking, I would give this movie a five. It's very middling, boring, nothing significant. There's some good moments in it that like sort of work, but it's not the worst. Thing. Like what? Tell me one thing that works. Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker always works for me, bro. Doesn't matter what he does, he always works okay. for me. So, I mean, in the moment, in the scene, like scene by scene, he works fine. But then when you put it the sum of his performance, the meaning, and just the script of that whole sequence. You're like, why did <laughs> it doesn't make any sense? And it's just bullshit. It's fuck. All right. I know. I know. I'm not. I'm just saying, like, that's me with my sentimental side speaking, five out of ten. Me with my intellectual side thinking, which is what I was <laughs> doing with this podcast, is like you said, two or three out of ten. Like, I can't give it less than a two because it's at least somewhat competently put together, even though the lighting fucking sucks in this movie. It's terrible. Like, there's all these unjustified and unmotivated, like, lighting positions that doesn't make any fucking sense. And, like, Andy Garcia is such a ham in this movie. It's fucking incredible <laughs> to watch. I'm sorry, Andy. You know what, man? I've, I've been trying for the better part of 20 years to like Andy Garcia. And he does nothing but let me down. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the Untouchables is what it is. You know, the Untouchables, he's great in the Untouchables. But, like... What does he do in the Untouchables? He's part of he's uh, like Kevin some... Costner's Wrecking Crew. Okay. You know what I mean? He has that great moment with Sean Connery when he's at the shooting range. And he puts the gun under his throat when Sean Connery's insulting the Italian people. And he's like, better than you, you mick prick. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Okay, now I remember. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, he's he's good in The Untouchables, and, you know, like, I was talking to a friend about The Godfather Part 3 the other day, and I'm like, you know, The Godfather Part 3 is a bad movie. I'm not going to deny that it's a bad movie. It's a huge letdown between the other two, 
But if you view it on its own merits, it's not a bad movie. It's just kind of middling, yeah. you know what I mean? It's got some yeah, good moments, yeah. but it's middling for the most part. But when you compare it to the other two, that's when people look at it and they're like, this is a piece of shit. It's the worst fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. But if you saw it on its own, it's not the worst thing that I've ever seen. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I don't feel like the hate towards that movie is really that deserved. Um <laughs> It's not that bad, but, but yeah, I mean, compared to to masterpieces, yeah. Oh, it's, sure, it's absolutely, it is. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, really... I mean, that's what happens when you wait what sixteen years between sequels is that you yeah. do that. I don't know why they fucking waited that long. By the way, it's like a whole thing with fucking because it wasn't a movie that needed to be made. That's yeah. That's main it problem. didn't mean it didn't need to be made. <laughs> You're absolutely correct. But it's also that you know Francis Ford Coppola went off in order to do the conversation in 1975 after Godfather Part Two, and then he went on to do Apocalypse Now in 1979. Yeah. And I out. really think that he lost <laughs> his goddamn mind on Apocalypse Now. And yeah. He just you know no, he, he never he came got, back. He burnt out on that movie and didn't give a shit. Realized that he would fucking have a heart attack yeah. or something like that <laughs> stroke yeah put a hundred percent into another movie so to I mean, to yeah. his credit though he has said in interviews that he knew that he only had four movies in him after he did apocalypse now and that every single movie after that that he's made is just because that he likes making movies but he knows that they're not good and I'm like, good. Well, at least somebody has to say it, and it's the fucking director himself. Because, <laughs> like, Tetro and, like, Youth Before Youth are, like, two of the most fucking pretentious piles of shit that I've seen in my life. On top of, like, Jack with fucking Robin Williams. Like, oh, my oh, God. Oh, wait, what? He directed He it? directed that, yeah. Jack mm -hmm. is a Francis Ford Coppola movie, dude. It's, uh, it's fun. <laughs> Imagine your resume. It's like... Godfather Part 1, Godfather Part 2, The Conversation, fucking Apocalypse Now, and then it's like, Jack. Jesus Christ! <laughs> How does that happen? But besides the fact, so, Paul, quick question. Looking to next week, bro, what were we talking about earlier? We were talking about, oh, we were talking about Step Brothers, maybe. Step Brothers, Step Brothers yeah. maybe. But this... This got our drama thing out of the way because you were saying that we wanted yeah. to do some genre shit. But you had also mentioned that you wanted to go back to shitty horror movies for a second and maybe check out some bad horror movies. Yeah, I know. There's plenty of those. I mean, um, what, are you, what are you feeling like? <laughs> what are you feeling like for next week? I mean, I've been pushing for a comedy for a while, like a, an Adam Sandler-esque thing, but... Uh... Will Ferrell is a perfectly good target <laughs> as well. And I actually, yeah, I do like Step Brothers, so that could be an interesting episode. What about, like, Dewey Cox? shit on it as hard as you can. Dewey Cox, you know, I watched that, and it just, uh, you know, it was a piece of shit. <laughs> I didn't know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I mean, we're not going to rail on that too much because we both agree that it's fucking terrible. Maybe we can think about it later, but. I fucking hate Dewey Cox, but besides the point, I hate Step Brothers. <laughs> On a gut reaction, if I could have rated it less than a one, I would have, because I fucking hate nice. that movie. But how how do you feel about it in terms of like, you know, zero to ten, so to speak, or one to ten, since zero breaks statistics? I like it a lot for dumb reasons, I guess. So I'd give it like a seven. A seven. Know, six or you seven. fucking <laughs> piece of shit. God damn it. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's there's the comedy angle there for sure if you wanted to go down that route. Yeah. But uh, let's see here. Let me pull this up real quick with potential movies. What are some like shitty horror movies that everyone likes that we could shit on? 
we could pick some obscure horror movie and do that, but who gives a fuck? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. no, you need to you need to pick up like <laughs> just like this movie. But you know, this this movie is like an odd case because there's plenty of people that like follow it with like some sort of like gusto that it is a good movie. It's just people misunderstand it. But you yeah. know, I'm a guy that I mean, I fucking own this movie, but it's not because like I think it's such a great movie. It's just that there's moments that sort of work for me. And it works enough for me that, like, the moments that are there that work for me, I'm willing to own the fucking Blu-ray of it in order to have those moments again. But to be honest with you, like... I mean, did you really have to pay a lot for the Blu-ray? You probably just found no, it in the dollar I, I paid, like, Walmart eight bucks for it or whatever on Amazon. It wasn't a lot. It was, yeah. like, literally less than the cost of a sandwich in order for me to get this movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was, like, with this movie, like, it, I get it. You know, I get why people don't like it. And, like, it's fine. And I'll agree with you that it's not a good movie. You're never going to hear me bring this up. But, like, I haven't seen this movie in probably, I don't know, 12 years like i saw it once in theaters and i saw it maybe the year after i bought it on blu-ray how did you even see it in theaters it was at the guild dude it was at the guild Um, they were one of the seven theaters in (laughs) i fucking saw it because of the guild that's the reason i saw it and it looked even worse when it was being projected in 35 dude like the projection print on this movie looks like shit it looked terrible. And, like, even from the get-go, I knew that that was part of this movie that just didn't work for me because it's so fucking, like, bad in terms of the yeah. way it looks anyway. But I don't know, Paul. Like, mm. tell me what you want, man. Like, tell me, do you want to do, like, a, a fucking uh, kids movie? We can do, like, Super Mario Brothers or Hook. Or oh, do you really want to lean into Step Brothers? <laughs> <laughs> I can't do Jack and Jill. I'm going to just strike through that right now because I can't, I can't, I can't fucking sit through that again. I saw it once, and it was fucking awful. I kind of want to see it just because I've heard so much shit about it. Right. But I've never watched it. It's horrible, man. I I don't, don't know any other word it. in order to describe it other than horrible. The Jesus Rolls, you said, wasn't good enough for you to shit on all day, so I'm going to cross that out. It was disappointing. <laughs> I worked it's on that piece of shit. <laughs> uh... No, what are some good horror movies? You got anything? Good bad ones? I watched The Prowler, actually. The Prowler. So, the only reason I heard of it was because Tom Savini worked on it. Yeah. He said it's some of his best work. Really? And so, I watched it. I mean, the makeup effect's pretty good, but it's just about... I mean, it's a dead teenager slasher movie kind of thing where... Right. Guy kills people, and <laughs> that's it. I mean, there's really nothing else going on as far as I can tell. So it's pretty shitty, but uh, I don't think it's worth anything. I mean, you could pick any one of the, like, Friday the 13th movies or uh, something like that. Or we could just pick uh, a modern horror movie that made a lot of money despite being a terrible piece of shit. (laughs) You know, like a a Bloomhouse production type thing. Yeah, you know, I hated Insidious. I really hated that movie. I haven't seen that one. I mean, it's bad. It's not like the worst thing that I've ever seen. I didn't like The Nun either. I thought The Nun was kind of a pile of shit as Mm -hmm. well. But like, I like The Conjuring and I like The Conjuring too. You know, like they're both great movies. Oh yeah, The Conjuring was great. But like The Nun... I mean, Bloomhouse, he he has his place as a producer and you know... Yeah. He does the whole shotgun effect thing where a couple of them are going to stick, but you know, it gives a... Gives money to young filmmakers. Hey, man, Get Out got nominated for any... six Oscars, so it won one, so there it is. 
Dreamcatcher is a fucking horror movie. It's a Stephen King horror movie too, with Morgan oh, yeah. Freeman. You pick nearly any movie based on a Stephen King book and it's going to be a piece of shit. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wait, who's in that? Is that uh, Morgan? Down? No, it's Morgan, Morgan Freeman. Freeman. It's Morgan Freeman and the guy that plays Lieutenant Winners in Band of Brothers who's on that show Billions on Showtime now. Damien. Shit, I should know this. But anyway, yeah, like that's that's the guy who's in it is uh, the guy that was in Band of Brothers and that was really the only reason that I saw Dreamcatcher is that it was 2003 and it was right after I had seen Band of Brothers. And I was like, the other guy's a fucking great actor. And like the trailer looked fun. So I was like, yeah, fuck it. And then I saw Dreamcatcher and I was like, what? <laughs> what? what? Why? Like, why did we make this movie? <sighs> World War Z. <laughs> I don't hate World War Z enough in order to rail on it that much. Like, there's bits and pieces about World War Z as a movie that I like, but, like, as an adaptation of the book and the fact that it has the name World War Z on it pisses me off. Because it's yeah. like, that is... Has it nothing to do with it. It fucks over the book, like, so much. And, like, the book is such a great, like book you know what i mean it's fucking fantastic and like max brooks wrote arguably one of the best like pandemic geopolitical dramas to like ever fucking like exist it just yeah. happened to be about zombies i'm actually uh, reading one of his uh books right now called uh devolution and it's about it's told in the same kind of way as world war z like an oral history type yeah. thing or whatever through multiple perspectives right. but it's about sasquatch bigfoot <laughs> nice Killing a bunch of yuppies in nice. uh, Washington State. It's pretty awesome. That sounds awesome, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He's such a great author. If you haven't read The Zombie Survival Guide, it's fucking like, it's yeah. one of the best books ever written. I love that book. It's actually useful to have in your uh, cabinet. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it is, dude. It's fucking <laughs> brilliant. But let's toss it up between Step Brothers and, uh, I don't know, a horror movie. I guess you could pick one out here. Do Van Helsing. Oh, my God. Is it too early to try to tackle another Steven Summers movie? Because we just did Deep Rising. Yeah. The separation is going to be seven episodes. So between Deep Rising and if we did Van Helsing, it would be seven episodes of uh, of distance between those two. Yeah, a little too close. But we should do that. And then have a shit on trip at the same time. Yeah. So. Let me let me reach out to Trip and see if he'd be willing to try to defend Van Helsing. Because <laughs> I know he liked that movie. So let's uh, I'll I'll toss it up to Trip and see if he wants to do another episode with Van Helsing and then uh it's if he doesn't then we'll do Step Brothers. How about that? Yeah, that sounds good. That's All right. Good. All right, great. All right. Well, anyway, just trying to see if there's any other horror movies that are worth shitting on. Problem with horror movies is they're usually shitty <laughs> and they're okay with that, you know. <laughs> so. What do we have here? I mean, Underworld is a fucking horror movie. I like Underworld, though. I thought Underworld was pretty fun. I haven't seen it. End of Days is sort of a horror movie. It's not a good one by any means. You know, the Arnold one? Wait, is that what the Arnold Yeah. yeah no, <laughs> Final Destination <laughs> 3. Final Destination is a movie that I absolutely hate. I despise that for <laughs> everything that's in me. But there's uh, there's also, you know, not to further complicate it, but there's the erotic thriller angle that we still haven't yeah. talked about yet. I'd have to really think about that, though, because, like, I hate disclosure, but I don't hate it enough in order to say that it's, like, a completely god-awful pile of shit that I want to shit on all day. Unless, uh, unless it's, like, Fifty Shades of Grey, 
Like Caitlin and I were just talking about, she thinks that we should do another chick flick because we haven't done one since the vow. Yeah, yeah Fifty Shades of Grey would be kind of fun. <laughs> I think I've never actually seen oh, it. Oh God, so I'm sure it'd be amusing. It's to a, it's that. a lot, man. It's a lot to deal with. <laughs> you're just sitting there and you're like, wow, this is uh, this is what's getting people's panties wet these days. <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let me let me toss it up to Trip. then. We'll talk about Van Helsing, or we'll talk about Step Brothers, and then maybe yeah. next week, or the week after that, we can talk about, like, an erotic thriller. We can do, uh, I'll add, uh, yeah. what's it called? We'll do Fifty Shades of Grey here. Yeah, speaking of, like, Michael Douglas movies, I was watching uh, of Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile the other night. And, uh, sure. Still like both of those movies a lot. I do, good. too. I do too. (laughs) I have a real problem with Michael Douglas in general, though, because he did so many fucking bad, like, erotic (laughs) thrillers. And even, I mean, I don't want to shit on it by any means, but, like, the game, you know, like, the game sort of falls in line there, too, that it's sort of an erotic thriller as well because of the whole Deborah Unger angle as a supporting character in that movie. Yeah. And it kind of, I mean, again, I don't want to shit on that movie because I love it, but. It kind of suffers because of that, because it's, you know, 1997, it's Michael Douglas, <laughs> it's like this yeah. weird sex angle in the movie, and it, it only, that movie only works because of David Fincher's directing. Like, the script is not yeah. that tight, and when you think about the twist at the end, it's like, it's all bullshit, <laughs> you know, like, it's a, it's a fucking bullshit twist, but it's good, you know, because of David Fincher's directing, yeah. so. But anyway, so I'll toss it out to Trip, we'll see what's up, and, you know, we'll go from there. So anyway, thank you guys once again for joining us on another uh, episode of the Movie Dicks podcast. This was The Air I Breathe, a fucking pretentious pile of shit that I still don't accurately know why I like this movie. (laughs) Like, I still (laughs) don't know how I like it because I know it's terrible. Anyway, thank you guys once again for joining us. This is the Movie Dicks podcast. I am Gabriel Chavez. And I am Paul Shindle. Good night, guys. Thank you.